You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. I had different uh, experiences as a child and different uh, years where Christmas was more meaningful or more sentimental to you in in one way or another. Uh, But how many of you remember a Christmas whenever there was one particular gift that you had been waiting for all Christmas or maybe even all year long? Anybody remember one of those kind of Christmases where you just kind of this excitement building up and you knew it was coming? How many of you ever got to Christmas morning? This kind of came to me. How many of you ever got to Christmas morning and you got all of your presents and you're waiting on that one package, that one present that you knew you'd been waiting for forever and ever and ever and ever. And all of a sudden you open all of your gifts and there's none left and you didn't get the present you're asking for. Anybody ever been, had that experience? Yeah, that's a tough experience. Uh, some of us, my parents uh, would oftentimes have the uh, the gift that I was waiting for behind a closed door somewhere back uh, at the back side of the house or Whatever, and then I would open all of the gifts, you know, and then I'd go, where is it at? Uh, I remember one year, uh, one of those things that I wanted. Now, kids, y'all are going to laugh at this. Uh, but one of the things that I wanted was an NES, Nintendo Entertainment System. Some of you are going, that was an Atari for me. Some of you are going, that's rocks for me. I don't know what you're talking about, but at any rate. But I remember, and I opened game after game after game, and I'm like, this thing's coming. And then I had games and no Nintendo. And uh, finally, they brought it out from behind closed doors. You know, we all have things that we expect, right, that we hope for. I don't know what 2000 and uh, what year are we in, 2019? I don't know what 2019 brought your way or what you were expecting this year to happen in your life. We all live with a certain sense of expectation. And the reality is sometimes those expectations are met and other times those expectations are not met. But when it comes to the Word of God and when it comes to our relationship with Jesus... There is an expectation that is set by God's word. God declares who Jesus is and what Christmas is all about. And the wonderful news about the Christian life is that those expectations are always met. Because Jesus is in fact the one that we have been waiting for. And he was the one that the nation of Israel was waiting for, the promised Messiah. And so there should be a certain sense of expectation in our lives When it comes to our relationship with Jesus, we should be like Simeon. You remember in Luke chapter two, do you remember the story, that Christmas story when there was a man in Jerusalem and his name was Simeon? And whenever he saw the child, he was a he was a righteous and devout man. And it says about him that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And when he saw Jesus, he took him into his arms and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory for glory to your people, Israel expectation. We should have a certain expectation when it comes to 
our relationship with Jesus. The same kind of expectation that this man Simeon had. What does it look like whenever we have this sense of expectation? We confess that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. We put our faith and trust in Him that He will fulfill all of His promises and that He is the way of salvation. And we have an anticipation of His coming return just as we've sang about this morning. So the Bible is filled with these kinds of expectations. They're called prophecies. All throughout the Old Testament, these promises that Jesus was coming, all of them met in Christ at different parts of His ministry. And we're going to look together over the next couple of weeks, few weeks as we prepare for Christmas at these prophecies. And I shared with the worship team a few moments ago as we were praying that I needed them to pray for me. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. Pray for us and our hearts. Because typically, whenever we think about the prophecies concerning Jesus, we go immediately, we make a a headlong run to Jesus. And we should, we should think about Jesus. But if we're not careful, we'll miss, miss the context of what's going on. For example, let me just put this one before you. When you hear, unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Who do you think about? Who do you think about? Jesus, right? We immediately begin to think about the nativity and the birth. How many of you think Ahaz? Anybody? You see, the challenge for us as we come to, as we're New Testament Christians and we think about the Old Testament is for us to remember that verses have context and we need to hear what the word of God is saying to the people that heard it before we can ever completely get what's being said to us. And so that's the challenge before us over the next several weeks. The first one being the Emmanuel prophecy. So what I want to do real quick is read to you. These few verses, and then we're going to jump together into Isaiah 7. This is Matthew 1, 21 through 23. You know this prophecy. She will bear a son, speaking of Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, namely the prophet Isaiah, which we're about to read. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Jesus. Emmanuel, which means God with us. So where does that come from? If you found your place in Isaiah 7, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 7, look with me at verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, At the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim, 
the son of Ramalia, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us, let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabael as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you have wearied my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that as we open your word to the Old Testament this morning to hear what your people heard so long ago, 700 years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would hear it with the same ears, with the same understanding. God, that we would respond to your word in obedience. I pray that we would learn the lesson that Israel did not learn and that we would respond to the coming Christ, the one who has now come for us already, that we would respond to him in faith, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in that. I pray that you would open our eyes to see where maybe the form of our faith is much more like Ahaz than it is like the disciples in the New Testament and that we would repent. Lord, help us to be more like Jesus today and help us to anticipate more his coming. And I pray it in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. And so it was a day similar to the day 2,000 years ago when Jesus came. The nation itself was experiencing a sense of prosperity. They were experiencing a certain sense of political power and prestige. It was 700 years before Jesus came that Ahaz was reigning as king over the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. 735 to 715, he would rule as an evil king over the southern kingdom. And so as we look at this passage, it was not first written to New Testament Christians or American Christians. It was first written to Jews. And if we're to understand the passage, we need to understand it in its original context. Every text has a context. One uh, commentator uh, has often been quoted that any text without a context is a pretext. If we don't understand what it means, then we're just simply assuming a meaning into what the Bible is teaching us. So what is it teaching us? Well, it is, in fact, a prophecy concerning Jesus. 
As New Testament Christians, we have the benefit of having the New Testament. So we can look at the way the New Testament writers interpreted the Old Testament and with authority state that this is a passage concerning Jesus. In fact, let me just read to you from Matthew 1 and verse 18, this picture that Matthew gives us of the story of the coming of Christ, the birth of the Christ child. Matthew tells us that the birth of Jesus took place in this way, that when his mother Mary had betrayed or rather had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And as we read a few moments ago, that she would bear a son and call his name Jesus. But this passage actually adds that he would be the savior of the world. He would save his people from their sins. And all of this took place that what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, that is Isaiah, as we just read, would come to pass. And then it says that Joseph woke from sleep and he took his wife and he did not know her until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Incredible story quoted from Isaiah of this prophecy about Jesus. Now, we could see that in a couple of different ways. We could understand this as kind of a twofold or double fulfillment where maybe there was a son born in the Old Testament and a son born in the New Testament. And and we should understand this as a prophecy about two different sons. Or we might understand this as a new significance approach. In other words, maybe Isaiah said something in the Old Testament that had meaning and value that day. But in the New Testament, it came to pass that it would have new significance in Jesus. And and Matthew would take this passage and quote it for us in a new application kind of a way. But both of those missed the point that this had very real significance about the coming Jesus. And we see it not just here in Isaiah 7, we see it in Isaiah 9. If you were to read this, it's unmistakably about Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those things can't be said about a mere human child. It's clear that the prophecy is not about a son that would be born in that day. It's about a son who is yet to come, the son Jesus. But again, the passage already has a context. So let's not overlook what was going on. You remember the question I asked you? What do you think about when you hear this prophecy? Do you think about Jesus or do you think about Ahaz? Who is this king of Israel? Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Well, we know about King Ahaz that he was the king of the southern kingdom. Remember that the nation had divided because of turmoil among them. Some serving the Lord, some not. Many of them doing what was right in their own eyes. And so in the midst of all of the turmoil, the nation divided. And there comes threats against the land, but it is generally able to stand until this last, this seventh century before the coming of Jesus. 
Aram and Israel, that is the northern kingdom, northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called, called Judah. Aram and Israel form an alliance. And this alliance against Assyria that threatened the land of Israel. The southern kingdom was pressed. He was, Ahaz was receiving message after message. Come and join us in this alliance so that we're strong enough together to defeat this one. And yet Ahaz continued to refuse. Northern powers invaded this land of Israel and brought them to their ruin. And yet there was a second invasion. By the way, if you're following your Old Testament history, Second Chronicles chapter 28 tells this story. A second invasion came with the intent to replace Ahaz. The Assyrian nation were trying to come against them again and again. So we'll just put a king in his place that will do exactly what we want him to do. And that's what we see here, the beginning of the passage. Look there at verse 5. Because Syria with Ephraim, the son of Ramalia, has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, Notice what they say about it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set and, and set up the son of Tabael as king in the midst of it. And then thus says the Lord God, they're trying to come and replace Ahaz because he's refusing to follow. And you would think that Ahaz would say, no, I'm going to trust in God because God is the God of Israel. Israel has a king. His name is Jehovah. And yet this is not at all what Ahaz does. In fact, you, you are going to notice that Ahaz, by the way, being described as the house of David, would go his own way. He would set up his own throne and he would form an alliance with Assyria. Maybe the best method of action is that we go to war against our closest allies by allying with our enemy. That would make sense. He did what was politically expedient. Because the Bible teaches us that he became fearful. Look there at verse 2. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. We don't get that picture, but it is this trembling of the leaf, this panic, if you will. He was terrified. And so Ahaz was faced with a decision. Would he trust in the Lord? Or would he take matters into his own hands? How many of you have ever been faced with that decision? Are you going to trust in the Lord? Or are you going to take matters into your own hands? Well, Ahaz has given clear instructions there in verse 3. Isaiah is supposed to go out and meet Ahaz. Verse 3, it says, You and Shear, Jashub, this is the son of Ahaz. By the way, it means a remnant shall return. That becomes really important here in a second. This son of Ahaz, they're supposed to go together at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet to not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. In other words, there is this great and mighty power, it seems, and these kings, and yet they're nothing more than a smoldering stump. We lit a fire. I could show you pictures of the fire that we built. This, you know, men are, we, we love to build fires because we want to build big fires, and it's just what men do, right? And so this big fire, well, it's this, you know, this tall off the ground. And the next morning, it's just a smolder. 
And if you look at this, this word, we don't get it here in the English. Notice that it is a fierce anger. Actually, in the Hebrew, it is the same as a burning anger. And what Isaiah says is these, through the Lord, through the Spirit of the Lord, he says that these men that you're up against, they're just, they may have burning anger, but they're nothing more than a smoldering stump. So he says, these, these clear instructions, he says to him, be careful to keep quiet and do nothing. But Ahaz takes matters into his own hands. As I mentioned a moment ago, first, or Second Kings chapter 16 tells us that he formed an alliance with Assyria and came against Syria and Israel. He even used, by the way, God's money to give a gift to the king of Assyria so that he would come alongside with him. And so there's clear instructions that he should not do this, and yet he does. And then verse 7, there's a promise that accompanies the instructions. Look at it with me. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. If you look up all of those places on a map, he's not talking about Assyria. He's actually talking about the northern kingdom. And this northern kingdom is going to rise up against Assyria, and yet it's going to fall. Traced all the way back to the capital city, Damascus, and up to its king, Rezin, everything about the northern kingdom is going to fall. And he says to them, if you ally with Assyria, this northern kingdom is ultimately going to, going to fall, and you will be destroyed. Your faith, if you remain faithful, you trust in the Lord, you will be secure. And yet, if you do not have, if you do not remain faithful, you do not remain firm in the faith, then you will not be firm at all, he says there in verse 7. And that's the conclusion. This fierce burning anger would actually rise up against him. And so here is the message, the message to Israel, the message to Ahaz. Trust in the Lord or be destroyed. Trust in the Lord or be destroyed. It's interesting that he doesn't want them to do anything. He just wants them to be still and wait and trust in him. There's no need for them to make any political actions. There's no need for them to set up any laws. There's no need for them to rally the troops. The only thing that is needed is for them to be still and wait and trust in the Lord. This is really simple instructions. How many of you can get those instructions? Just kind of wait. Be patient. God's going to act. You stay and be patient and trust in the Lord. And yet, it is not something that they do. It's interesting that in the life of Israel, faith is not, has, has always, or rather, salvation has always been about faith and not about works. We think of the Old Testament as all of these rules to live by and the New Testament as grace. And yet, it was always about faith. Israel, trust in the name of the Lord your God was always about faith and not about works. And yet Ahaz immediately turns to doing something to, to, to get it done and to be saved. And this is not only a message to Ahaz. It's a, nation, a message to the nation of Judah, the nation of Israel. Huge implications. Notice this. Judah's capital is what? Jerusalem. The city of the Lord. The city that the Lord chose to dwell in. First Kings tells us this. 
and its king is the Davidic king. Ahaz was from the line of David. And the Lord's king is on the Lord's throne forever. This is the promise that Israel had known all of its days. First Chronicles 29 and following remind us of this Davidic covenant. And so effectively, here's what is being said in verse 7. If you're not firm in the faith, you'll not be firm at all. It's a warning to the people of God that his presence is being removed through this process and that no longer would there be a human king on the throne anymore. They would no longer be a nation. And sure enough, 722 B.C., Assyria takes the northern kingdom. 586 B.C., Babylon takes the southern kingdom. They are all led into exile and there is absolutely nothing left. Put your faith and trust in the Lord or be destroyed. And this is huge because the presence of God and God's salvation in the life of Ahaz and the life of Israel was riding upon their faith in him. It's huge. One act of faith. Now, remember, this is the very first prophecy in Isaiah's tenure as a prophet. And Isaiah had already been told, Isaiah, you're going to go tell them. You're going to tell them. And they're going to stop up their ears. They're not going to listen to you. All that's happening here is the very effective rebellion of the nation. And it proves true. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz in verse 10. Ask a sign. And he's not asking, he's not saying this honestly when he looks at the Lord. He looks at the Lord and says, God, you asked for a sign. Maybe this is a trick. We're not supposed to ask for signs. We're supposed to just trust you. He said, I don't need a sign, God. All the while, he's around behind the scenes, allying with four nations and trying to figure out and selling the, giving away the Lord's money for the sake of his own agenda. And so he says then the prophecy. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. It's going to give him a sign in a son, a son that is not immediately here. And yet this is the way the prophecy is phrased, as if there is an immediate expectation that that they should know that the Messiah is coming. And yet he turns away. And if you continue to read the story throughout Isaiah, it's a constant stopping up of the ears, a constant rebellion, a constant turning away. You see, they're not just turning away from God Himself. They're turning away from the Savior that God was providing. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the one they had been waiting for. It's as if the gift had come that they had been waiting for and it came in a package they didn't like. It came with expectations they weren't willing to submit to. It came with a different agenda and looking a little bit different than what they were hoping for. And even before Jesus came, they rejected the promise of the coming Messiah. And they find themselves in utter ruin. Isn't it a sobering warning? You see, the message of Christmas before it is ever hope is a sobering warning. It's clearly a message about the coming Messiah, yes. And His name is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. And yet, doesn't that promise stand in direct contrast to the destruction and the abandonment of the nation? That everything in the land would be deserted is as if the Spirit of the living God was removed from the nation. This is a warning. It's one last call, isn't it? Trust in the Lord. The one you've been waiting for, the Messiah, he's coming. And yet they 
refuse. They would rather, listen closely, choose their own way than trust in God's way of salvation. Trust in the Lord or be destroyed. It's a sobering warning, and yet it's a warning that resounds to us as well, isn't it? How often we are guilty of being like sheep and choosing our own way and going astray from what God has said to be true and right. It's always been about faith, trusting in the Lord and not works. And yet, by our works, we demonstrate that we are faithless often. We are sinners. By nature, we're separated from a holy God. We have ultimately rejected the Son of the living God. By nature, we've rejected His plan and His way for us. It's not just an empty faith that says to you, God, I don't need a sign. I'm right. I'm not. I'm going to follow Your Word. But it's actually... An obedient response that's required of, of us that demonstrates our faith. And I want to just plant this seed for a moment and move on. But just think about American Christianity. The reality of how much we often give lip service. We say that we believe the things of God. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died for us. And yet, oftentimes we find ourselves going to church and going through religious routine and giving lip service to a sign. And yet, our lives are no different than the culture around us. In fact, we partner with the culture around us to do what is culturally or politically expedient. What is most helpful to our lives and keeps us happy and profitable and all of those things. And yet Jesus has called us to live different lives in the midst of the culture. So often we do this. And the the truth of the matter is that if we don't trust in Jesus, it is trust in Jesus or be destroyed. It is put our faith and trust in Jesus or spend eternity in a place called hell. And the simple fact of the matter is our faith so often looks more like the faith of Ahaz, an empty shell, rather than a full, robust, robust trusting in Christ, where our lives are totally different. You see, I fear that in American Christianity we have this disconnect between what we think is Christianity and what really is Christianity. I've often heard it said that people who commit their lives to Jesus are are kind of radical. Those are the born-again type of people. And in reality, we live our lives in, in this way that we think we can just have our fire insurance and we can kind of just say a prayer and, and we can just kind of move on with our lives and everything goes back to the same. The reality is... Whenever we come to faith in Jesus, it is trusting in Jesus with all that we are, putting all of our faith in this coming Christ. Trust in the Lord or be destroyed. It is a sobering warning, but it is a message of great hope, isn't it? In the same way that it is a message of warning, it is a message of everlasting hope. What must our faith be in is the question. If we are putting our faith in God, what is that faith that we are that we are exercising and who are we putting that faith? And even Isaiah, even Ahaz in the Old Testament, all of them and us called to put our faith in the son. That's why it's here in the Old Testament. Ahaz, just know that there is a son that is coming. If you will put your trust in him, just simply be still. It's a message of hope. Interesting that this son, Sher Jesheb. His name means a remnant shall return. (laughs) 
This name of this son and the name of God's son, Emmanuel, God with us. There is a people, a remnant who are going to be saved, who are going to put their hope and their trust in the son. And that remnant will trust and will be with God for all of eternity. Praise God for that. And with them, it will be God with us, not God deserted us or God abandoned us. And so Isaiah's call is the same call to us. Trust in Christ. Trust in Jesus. This is the message of Christmas. Trust in Jesus. The story's not over. There's hope. If we put our trust and our faith in Jesus. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like for us to trust in this Son? There are five pictures given of Emmanuel. Who this Jesus is and who he's going to be and who we ultimately see him to be in the New Testament. Five different pictures, beginning with verse 14, the promise. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Trust in Jesus as the Son of God. Trust in him as the Son of God. We know the virgin will be Mary, the one who is never with a man, never having known Joseph. The Bible even tells us that we read it in Matthew one. She'd never known Joseph before they were married. And yet she became pregnant, a miracle of divine conception, by the way, not immaculate conception. I want to make a distinction for you. Immaculate conception is the belief, the doctrine that Mary was without sin when she conceived Jesus. And it is not true. It is a false doctrine. In fact, it undercuts the very miracle of Jesus being sinless. Jesus was born of a virgin. Mary was a sinner in need of salvation. There is nothing holy about Mary other than the fact that God set her apart for his will and his choosing and his purpose. And yet the son that she carried, and it is a miracle, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived and bore a son. And his name was called Jesus. And this Jesus was immaculate sinless he was born of a virgin and therefore he was yes the son of an earthly father joseph but his father the father in heaven he is the son of the living god by the way eternally god's son the only begotten of the father think of this jesus eternally with the father from the very beginning and before jesus has always been there And yet God saw fit for this, his only son, to become the son of woman, the son of man, so that he might come and save his people from our sins. This is an amazing reality. The God of heaven in Jesus broke into his creation and became a man, the son of the living God. And so you must trust in Him as the Son of God. If you cannot receive Jesus as the one born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, then you cannot receive Jesus at all. He is the one of promise, the Son of God. And we must receive Him in faith, believing that Jesus is the very Son of God, fully God, fully man. Secondly, you must trust in Jesus as the revelation of God. The revelation of God. Look at verse 14 with me again. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. If you translate that literally as Matthew does for us, it means God with us. God with us. Not a God. Not a certain manifestation of God. But God Himself with His people. Jesus is God in human flesh. He is the one who is the revelation of God. God with us. And this is an amazing miracle called the incarnation. When God became flesh. Every other religion of the world teaches that somehow you have to find your way to God. And only Christianity teaches us that God made his way to us. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And you and I are lost as sinners. And God came after us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is good news. And when he came after us to become flesh... He revealed to us the very nature of the Father. John 1 teaches us that in the beginning was the Word. It's describing Jesus. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And then John 1.14 teaches us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. To the end that we might behold His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Again, this principle stands in direct contrast to the judgment of God in destroying and withdrawing from Israel. Jesus in the New Testament comes to Israel. And if only Ahaz had trusted in Jesus, the one who was coming, he would have been saved. So we trust in Jesus as the Son of God and the revelation of God. Third, we must trust in Jesus as the salvation of God. You cannot miss the divinity of Christ and still gain salvation. You cannot miss the revelation of God that Jesus is God in human flesh, become man and still gain salvation. And certainly you cannot miss that Jesus is the only way of salvation and still be saved. Verse 14, the implication of Jesus being Emmanuel is that he would be Savior. It's what it means for God to be with us. There's no other reason for Jesus to have come than to save. That was his entire mission. And Matthew 1 points us to that. We've already read it. But he adds, Matthew adds to the picture that she will bear a son. and You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. John 1 that we just read is the echo of this, this prophecy here in the Old Testament. Just before proclaiming the incarnation in verse 14 that we read just a moment ago, he says in verse 13, verse 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The plan was always for Jesus to be salvation For Jesus coming to earth to be the only way of salvation. If you are looking for salvation in anything else, will not come. Ahaz looked to his own strength, his own power, his cultural ties, 
He looked to his national heritage to say, look at all that I am. I grew up in the people of God. I'm a king of the nation of Judah. I'm a king over the Jerusalem, the city of of God. I'm I'm a king in the line of David, a man after God's own heart. Surely all of these things and my own ingenuity of figuring it out. Surely all of these things are enough to save me from God's wrath. By the way, Assyria did not come just because of political conquest. Assyria came because God sent them for the judgment of his people. And in the same way, God's wrath burns hot against sinners. The only salvation from the wrath of a holy God is through his son, Jesus. That he's salvation. Trust in Christ for salvation. There will be a lot of people that say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all of these things, but works will all be burned up. The only thing that will be that will matter on that day is if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and that all of our lives given over to him as Lord and Savior of our lives. And so we trust in him as salvation. If you look anywhere else, there is no salvation for We need to trust in Jesus as the righteousness of God. So trust Him as God's Son, as the revelation of who God is and this salvation offered by God and God alone in Christ, but also as His righteousness, the righteousness of God. Curious phrase in verse 15. A lot of different interpretations here. Verse 15, He shall eat curds and honey. When he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. We've taken this verse and we've gone a lot of different paths. What do the curds and honey mean? Maybe there's some sign that points to the New Testament or something that Jesus did in his ministry. I think that that misses the point. We've taken this verse and we've gone and we've said about it. Well, what, maybe there's a day when when we're able to choose right from wrong. And, and that's the day of accountability in our lives. And, and I think maybe that that's true. And there's certainly a sense in which we understand right from wrong and are held accountable. And yet I don't think that's the meaning of the passage at all. The curds and honey was a normal thing for the day for the children to eat. It wasn't something out of the ordinary. It was something that was everyday life. And I think what the picture is here is that there was a day when Jesus would come and he would be just a simple human being, just like every one of us. He would live the life that we lived. And there would come a day when he would have right from wrong. He would know how to refuse evil and how to choose good. But it's interesting that he doesn't say he would know how to choose evil or good. Isaiah says that he would know how to refuse the evil and choose The good. There would be a conscious decision in the life of Jesus, though he was a normal, everyday boy, when he would begin to choose right and to turn away from wrong. And the picture here, I think, is that as we look at the life of Jesus, he would continue to do that. And the picture is he would always continue to be righteous. And he would live a perfect life all the way to the point of his death. You see, this flies right in the very face of what was happening in Israel. They were turning away from God, and yet this son would continue to choose obedience, would continue to choose righteousness. And as a man, he would become the perfect, sinless substitute for sinning people. Jesus would become the righteous substitute required for our, to pay our sin debt. You see, there's only way that God is only one way God is satisfied in us, and that is through 
perfect righteousness. Romans 8 says that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God himself became righteousness. He said he did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh like us, but not sinning like us. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, Jesus flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We have a choice, don't we? We can choose the righteousness of Ahaz or in effect our own righteousness. The one who says, I don't need a sign, God. Or we can choose the righteousness of Christ. The perfect, sinless substitute for us. I can promise you that on our own righteousness, which is as filthy rags, we will spend an eternity in a place called hell. There is nothing good in any single one of us good enough to satisfy a holy God for the sake of our sin. No good works can overcome the sin in our lives and in our own hearts. And sometimes on some days, we don't even know how sinful we really are. And yet, Jesus pays a perfect penalty for us. He paid it perfectly. So we must trust in His righteousness. There is a final picture here that the astute eye, if you're reading this carefully, you'll pick up on. Ahaz would not stand. He would not remain king of Israel. The house of David, in a human sense, would fall. The nation, the city of God, would fall. And yet, God's city would not ultimately fail. And the throne would not ultimately fail. It would not go vacant. Because the king that was intended to sit on the throne was not David. It wasn't Saul when Israel begged for a king. It was not ultimately David. It was not Ahaz. The king that would sit on the throne forever is King Jesus. So when this throne comes to an end, the throne of Ahaz, Jesus remains reigning. We must trust in Jesus as the reign of God. We must trust in him. We must trust in Him as the reign of God. And this is huge. This is important. Because so many people want Jesus to save them. They want all the benefits of salvation, but not willing to submit to Him as Lord. That's the faith of Ahaz. Ahaz says, yes, I want to be God's chosen people, and yet I'm not willing to wait and trust in you by faith. So verse 17 says about Ahaz and the people, The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the days since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. You see, God has this tension here. The tension is he will punish sin. He must punish sin, but he will also remain faithful to his promises. Aren't you glad of that? Somehow, God has to provide a way of salvation, and He does so through Christ. And yet, when He provides that way, it's no longer on, on our, it's no longer in our options to submit to our rule and our reign. Ahaz can't sit on the throne anymore. You can't sit on the throne of your life anymore. Jesus is now reigning supreme. Because the promise in Second Samuel 7 that the kingdom would have no end must remain true. And that is exactly what we read in the rest of this prophecy in chapter 9. It's exactly what we read. 
For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his increase, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And I love this last sentence. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Our God will keep his promise and Jesus will reign forever. I often hear people say whenever asked about what does it mean to be a Christian, especially here in the south. Well, I believe in God and he takes care of me every day. He answers my prayers. That's all well and good. But the question of salvation is not whether Jesus answers your prayers or whether he takes care of you, because it is true that God makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. God does providentially take care of, in a more general sense, the world that he created. And he does care for the people of this world. That does not equate to salvation. What is the question then of salvation? What makes the difference between the belief of the demons and the belief of the Christian? It is the one who says, I will no longer live for me, but I give my life for the rule and reign of Jesus, for his glory and his kingdom. And I want to live all of my days so that he is honored and glorified. That's the difference. It's what saving faith is. Someone who's born of God to love and to know the things of God and to serve Him for all of eternity. And I want to ask you very pointedly this morning. Is your version of Christianity more like Ahaz or more like the disciples in the New Testament? Is your version of Christianity one that says, I am, I am exposed to a culture That maybe in some sense has some Christian values and Christian lingo and Christian existence. And yet, I don't personally know Christ. Don't want Christ. I'll figure it out on my own. My life's not changed. Nothing's different. I look more like the world. I want to tell you today that that's not saving faith. That today you need Jesus. The hope of Christianity and the hope of Christmas is that all who call upon the name of the Lord in faith, in faith, the remnant, they will be saved. Would you bow your heads with me all across the room? We need to hear the warning of this prophecy. Trust in Jesus or be destroyed. To reject any of these things about Jesus, that He's the Son of the living God, the revelation of God, He's shown you who God is. He's the salvation of God, the only way. He is your righteousness. He is the reign, the Lord, the King of your life. To reject any of those things is to reject the Jesus of the Bible and to invite eternal judgment from God. But hear the hope of this prophecy. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved Jesus, Emmanuel, the Son, born of a virgin, the one who came to save His people from their sins. Us, from our sins today, if you'll trust in Him, you'll be saved. And that is 
the invitation from the Lord this morning. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's what I'm going to ask for you to do in a few moments. When we stand across this room, I'm going to ask you to step out of the place where you'll be standing. Today you say, Pastor, today I want to know Jesus. I want to submit my life to Him. Today I want Him to save me. So in just a few moments where you're going to be standing, you step out of your place, come down to this altar, and just simply say today, Pastor, I want to be saved. And I'll help you. Jesus gave His life for you. He's already done what was required. If you'll just simply trust Him today, and His righteousness will become your righteousness, and you will be right with God today. Others in this room, maybe you need to come and be reminded of God being with you today. He's with you. You've not been left alone. You've not been abandoned. And whatever expectation failed this year, God will always meet the expectations that He has set. His promise in your life. If you'll trust Him. So all across this room, let me invite you to stand and I'm going to pray. And as I begin to pray, you come this morning. Lord, have your way in this place this morning and in our hearts. God, we thank you for Christmas and we ask, God, that you would help us not to be a part of this cultural picture of Christianity, but help us to be real with you and with our lives. And God, may you, may you save those that are lost today and may you encourage us and remind us of what you've done for our salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As music begins to play, you come this morning. The altar is open. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.